we are reminded that we are tempted in our own hearts to, to grumble, to complain, to cast upon God, why is it so hard, the things that we're facing in life, why are things so difficult for us, and God, will you do something about this? Will you relieve your heavy hand upon us? Will you deliver us? Will, will you change your will so that we would be more comforted in this circumstance or situation? That's what we're asking in the moment, even if we don't exactly state it that way. And the question brought up is the very question that comes in our text this morning in Romans chapter 11, 1 through 10, which is, can we change the will of God? Can we, in our difficulties, we, in our burdens, change God's will? And the profound answer that's poured out in this text is no. God is gracious in his dealings. Nothing that man can do can thwart God's purposes or change God's plans. Nothing that man can do to resist God's will. He is going to accomplish his good purposes. Nothing is going to thwart God. And that's being demonstrated in this passage. Even the wickedness of Israel, even their open hostility, even their rejection of God, even as they take the righteousness of God and turn it on its head and they seek to pervert the message, making a righteous standard of their own, none of that thwarts God's purposes. Even in their rebellion right now, God is accomplishing his good purposes is not thwarted by their hostility, their rejection. Paul's been laying this out to his audience. So he says back in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? In light of all this rebellion, all this rejection, he hasn't turned away from them and, and abandoned them, has he? And of course, Paul answers emphatically, he has not, because look, he has redeemed me, a Jew, He's rescuing me. He had rescued me and brought me out of darkness, and he opened my eyes. And, he, and I, a Jew, one born of, from a descendant of Abraham, an Israelite, one of the tribe of Benjamin, I have all of, the, all of the credentials demonstrating my Jewishness, and God saved me. He is saving others as well. So if the wicked couldn't oppose God and change God's plan, well, maybe... The righteous grumbling at the difficulty they're under because of the wickedness of man, maybe that would change God's plan. And this is what Paul brings out in verses 2 through 6. He brings out the suffering of Elijah and the grumbling that Elijah brings out when he has been opposed and rejected. And what we see in Elijah is a kind of grumbling spirit, a kind of grumbling heart, a kind of uh, displeasure towards God, a self-pitying, a discontentment with God and his plans that he starts to criticize what is happening and implying, God, you need to do something about this. My life is so hard, it's so difficult, uh, it, the pressures that I'm under right now are so heavy that if you're really a good God and a loving God, cared for his people, you would see that I'm one of yours and you would see that I'm in distress and you would come along and rescue me and deliver me in this moment of distress. And what 
Elijah is demonstrating in this moment is this grumbling and complaining heart. And he's taking it before God. Often we don't think very carefully about the dangers of grumbling and complaining. It's one of those kind of acceptable sins that we just let happen. Whether it happens in our kids, our families, or in our, our own hearts, it just kind of springs up. But we don't recognize how insidious it is and how rapidly it spreads. How he's chuckled in life as, you know, as a father leading my own kids certain seasons. You know, it always happened kind of around dessert. As soon as dessert came out and dished out the dessert for all the kids, the kids who hated science always seemingly at the moment became scientists measuring the bulls and analyzing the aspects. Oh, you got a corner and I got a middle and you got the more frosting than I got. And all of a sudden, the complete analysis of what's taking place and what came out and injustice. They got more than I got. They got a better piece than I got. And on and on. The grumbling spirit started to come out and it spread through everybody. They're all arguing. No, I didn't. My piece was the same as your piece. Of course, they are enjoying their desserts, but complaining that it was not enough. The grumbling spirit spread around rapidly. I think about this when I, uh, for our nursery workers, especially those who have to watch the infants, and I always dread to hear and have a special place in my own heart to pray for them when I hear that morning when, yeah, we had you know, eight newborns. They were all sleeping. And then one came in crying and woke them all up, and they're all crying now. As it spread through the whole room, and just the one grumbling and complaining spirit starts irritating the next, and it just moves downhill. And I thought about the power of grumbling and complaining, the power of influence, the, the number of times in my own life I've been in those scenarios where, again, some decision comes up and dad takes a stand. This is what we're going to do. And, of course, kids weeping and gnashing of teeth. How could we have such a father as you that you would make such a decision? But I'm resolved. I'm going to do this. Not moving. I, this, is, this is of God. And then, of course, my beloved wife, gets behind the kids, and now the pressure is really on. <laughs> Mom and the kids are now opposing, and Dad is hearing the weeping and wailing that's going on, resisting, and, and I'm no longer as resolved as I once was before. The power of a grumbling and complaining spirit that can come and resist and cast a discord on one's peace is a powerful influence. And that's what's demonstrated in this passage. And the idea is this. Is it possible that the wicked under distress, the wicked who have been mis or the righteous under distress, the righteous who have been di uh, distressed by the wicked, can a righteous man come and bring his com grumbling and complaining to God and change God's will? When you are distressed and you are praying, and you are seeking deliverance, and you are casting yourself upon the Lord, what is taking place in that moment? That's the context that Romans 11, 2 through 6 takes us through. 
And we looked at this briefly last week, making a high-level observation, but I want to draw your attention particularly to what Paul draws out here. Because Paul, again, taking up this question, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He lays down and definitively states God's plan, God's will, God's purposes are not thwarted. He foreknew his people. He has not changed his plan. He has not rejected them. He is not going to reject them. Even in the face of their hostility at this moment, he is not moving. It's immovable. To which then... Paul brings up the next aspect. Okay, we understand the wickedness of Israel is not going to change God's plan. But what about the suffering of the righteous? Would that change God's plan? Notice how Paul brings it out. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? And Paul gives some insight into the prophet Elijah here. He gives us a divine perspective inspired by the Holy Spirit and shows us what is taking place in Elijah's heart. He is pleading against Israel. And it's that phrase there, pleads against Israel, or he pleads with God against Israel, that I want to draw our attention to. Because when I think about pleading against, and this is probably how my corrupt mind works, but the image that comes in my mind is a woke liberal complaining about having to go to work. Pleading against. Why do I have to do this? It's unfair that I have to work. That's in my mind, the active kind of resisting pleading against. But that's not the idea in this text. Actually, What is happening in this particular text, as we will see, is a moping, complaining, disgruntled prophet who is showing his suffering, hoping that God is going to do something about it. And what he is demonstrating in all this is to say, God, if you were really understanding what's going on here, you're just going to do this thing and remove Israel. Wipe out the wicked. And the question, and Paul brings out by implication here is, will God be manipulated by man to do man's will instead of his own? And the answer is going to be, of course, emphatically no. But to understand that, let's go back to the book of 1 Kings and Let's see this account unfolded. So turn over to 1 Kings 16. Let me just walk you through a few chapters here and demonstrate to you from the life of Elijah what is taking place. Because it is very helpful to understand how Elijah is operating in this time. 1 Kings 16 sets up for us the context Chapter 19 is where we're going to draw our attention, but starting in 1 Kings 16 and verse 29, the writer gives us the history of the time period that we're addressing here. We're in the time period of the divided kingdoms. We're in the time period where Ahab, the son of Omri, verse 29, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. 
two kings, the king of Judah down in the south is King Asa, who had been there 38 years, and now the king in the north, Ahab, the son of Omri. Verse 29 continues and says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So you have this contrast. The northern king and his corruption and wickedness who reigned for many years in his corruption and the southern king in his righteousness who reigned for many years. What kind of wickedness did Ahab do? Verse 31 and 32 tells us. came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and he and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So Ahab went, married this foreign woman, brought her gods back to Israel, set up there in Israel a temple to the foreign gods and started worshiping foreign gods in Israel. He had abandoned the ways of God. That's the setting. In comes then chapter 17. In comes the hero, Elijah, the prophet of God, who is now coming to bring judgment upon this wicked king at this time. Verse 1 of chapter 17, now Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Here's the judgment. You're no longer going to have rain. God is bringing a drought. And he is bringing a drought until I say relent. Ahab now, thunder as the king, thunder then the judgment of God, and all of Israel is under the judgment. From there, Elijah leaves and he flees away, and he is first protected and provided for by a group of ravens who come and bring him food by day and night. Verse 6 tells us, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. He's hidden from, from Ahab. He is on the run. He is being fed by these groups of birds that God had provided for him so that Elijah would be provided for during this time. And then God tells Elijah for a period of time he's in that state, and then God sends Elijah out and to find a widow. And this widow would be would provide for Elijah food and shelter that he would need. Pick up in verse 12, <clears throat> uh, verse 11. She, as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Verse 12, but she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar, and behold, I am in, I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah found, finds this widow, sees her, 
calls out for her food. She tells him, look, we have nothing. We're about to die. In fact, we're about to go have our last meal and die. This is a despairing situation for her. But God, in his grace, provides for them. Look down at verse 14 through 16. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. And the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. God supernaturally preserved that food for the three of them. Preserved that food so that they could eat morning and night. Provided for each time they came back to it. It was supernaturally provided for them. James tells us in James chapter 5 and verse 17 that this was three and a half years. Three and a half years that they kept coming to the same oil, to the same bread, having just enough for them to eat, only to come back for the next meal and to be in the exact same place. Three and a half years, God cared for this prophet wandering, cared for this widow and her son, cared for them, ministered to them. Till chapter 18, verse 1. Now it happened, after many days, The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. All right, it's time. Three and a half years later, from the announcement to Ahab, now it's time for Elijah to come and announce to Ahab, This is over, and the rain is about to return. And he comes, Elijah comes to Ahab, And you see, verses 17 through 19 is the account. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Wow, this is a repentant heart, right? Is it you? He said, I have not, this is Elijah, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send, and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. We'll go gather up all of your religious authorities, 450 Baal prophets, 400 prophets of Asherah, bring them to this place on Carmel. This would be a 20-mile journey they would head to. And they would head up and go to this place where they were going to set up this account. To which then, verse 20 picks up. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel. And brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Said there, verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But notice, but the people did not answer him a word. 
Elijah calls out all the people and says, look, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve God? You have to choose. And the people are now here in a stunned silence. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord. But prophets, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves, and cut it up, and place it on the wood, and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox, and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God of, who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people said, this is a good idea. So here's the test. We're going to set up this test to see which God is going to respond, the God of Baal or the God that Elijah answers to. Which God is going to respond with fire? Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it. First for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar which they had made. Stop right there. So now you have many hours here from the time this started. Could have started as early as morning. Would have started at 6 a.m. Could have started as early as morning. Likely as much later than that. Maybe between 8 and 10. So now you have anywhere from 2 to 4 hours. 2 to 4 hours that they had sacrificed this oxen, laid it out, built their altar, began pleading, dancing around. And about this time now, in this two to four hour period of time, they're starting to get frustrated. They are now dancing on the altar. Maybe that more to this sacrifice. Maybe Baal wants to sacrifice one of us too. So they're all in. Now, verse 27. And I think at this moment in time, Elijah is at a spiritual high point. This is the prophet Elijah geared up, excited by what's taking place, and he's showing his whole heart at this point. Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice. Maybe you're not yelling loud enough. Get louder. For he's a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Hey, you're not yelling loud enough. Your God's distracted. All kinds of different answers that guys have given about distracted there, but the point is your God's not paying attention, and you need to do more to get his attention. That's the point. Verse 28, So they cried with a loud voice, and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them, out of them. And when midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. So they went on for six more hours. From noon until 6 p.m., they are cutting themselves, screaming to their God, pleading out loud. They are begging for their God to respond, and nothing happens in the indictment at the end of verse 29. But there was no voice. 
no one answered, and this phrase, and no one paid attention. They had not only stirred themselves up, they're pleading for their God to respond. The God's not responding, no voice, no answer, and now even the people have grown disinterested in the activities any longer. After all, it's only so long that you can watch somebody pleading 10 hours of this going on and nothing's happening, you'd lose heart too. To which then Elijah pulls it back together, verse 30. Elijah says to all the people, come to me, come near to me. So all the people gather around, they come near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So he undid Ahab's wickedness, rebuilt the altar. And he took the twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Reestablished the altar, reestablished the the symbolic nature of the 12 tribes there. He drew attention back then to God's work. Verse 32. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. This trench dug all the way around could hold two measures of seed. And it goes on, 33, and then he arranged the wood and he cut the ox in pieces and he laid it on the wood and he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. What he's doing at this point is removing all doubt. This is going to be a work of God. Likely, because of, the sto- because of the drought, three and a half years, it wasn't like they had water around. They had to send a group out to the nearest sea to grab that water and bring it back to be able to pour it. So likely, part of the reason taking 10 hours is Elijah sitting here waiting for this water to come. But honestly, it was to demonstrate that God is what he's going to do, is going to go against all natural reasoning. That no one could say, well, it just kind of sparked and came up. This is undoubtedly a work of God because there's nothing that should light this. It's flooded with water. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that, you, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned, your hearts back, turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and he licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The people saw this miraculous event. God burnt up the altar, burnt up the sacrifice. He consumed the water. He demonstrated His marvelous power. He responded. The God of Israel responded. The God of Baal says, did nothing. God demonstrated His power demonstrated his work, and the people were in awe of it. They were stunned. 
The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Which immediately, Elijah, verse 40, said he turned and he had all the Baal prophets seized, 450 prophets seized and taken down and had them slaughtered, killed. Now again, this is Elijah at his spiritual mountain peak. The prophet of God, the man of God, the man of righteousness, the man who is on God's side, the man who is protecting God's character, the man who has been used by God to bring judgment upon Israel, has just mocked the, the God of Baal, mocked Baal, mocked the God of the people, mocked their, their prophets, and then had them destroyed. He is thinking now, he is victorious. At this point, God is vindicated. Elijah turns, he then prays, he prays for restoration. Rains come, starts off small, a cloud starts as the hand of a man's fist, and then comes out and fills the land and begins to bring a rain upon the whole land. There's a huge rain shower that falls. Ahab gets into his chariot. He heads back to Jezreel. As he's heading back in his chariot to Jezreel, he heads out into a storm. Elijah, at the end of verse 46, says he girded up his loins and he ran. Outbeat, outran Ahab in his chariot, beat the horses there. He gets to, to Jezreel first. And again, I think he's looking for what we would all look for, revival. This is it. Israel's going to turn. They're going to see that God has demonstrated his power. They are, back to verse 21, they're going to decide it's going to be God. Follow God or follow Baal, they're going to reject Baal. They're going to follow God. Everyone's going to turn, and they're going to believe in the God of Israel because he has demonstrated this power. Now, chapter 19. So all this sets up our context here in, in chapter 19. Gives us the background. Now Ahab told, this is verse 1, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And she fell on her face and she said, why did we ever turn against the God of Israel? No, that's what Elijah had expected. Instead, it says that she responded in verse 2, so may the gods do to me, and she sent out a messenger to Elijah telling Elijah this, may the gods do to me even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You killed all the prophets. If I don't kill you by tomorrow this time, may the gods do the same thing to me. And notice verse 3, Elijah's response to that. But he himself went, or, or verse 3, and he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba. He was terrified by this response. Jezebel wasn't turning and repenting. She wasn't falling on her knees saying, why has, have I rebelled against the living God? No, she was stubborn in her heart, hostile. And Elijah, when he hears that, when he sees that the hearts are hardened and they haven't been softened, he responds, as the text indicates, in fear and runs away. The prophet who was mocking the Baal prophets the day before is now terrified and fleeing. 
I mean, at least if Elijah was consistent, he would have said, bring it on, lady. Did you see what happened yesterday? But that's not his response here. His response is self-pitying, terror, fear, uncertainty, maybe even shock at the level of unbelief in the hearts of the people. How could you not be swayed by this marvelous miracle, this fire from heaven that was so powerful? How could you not be persuaded by this grand demonstration of God's marvelous power? Is there something then greater out there that could resist God's power? Now he's terrified, and he flees. He runs away. It says that he runs down to Beersheba, which is in Judah, This is about a hundred miles south from where they were at. Runs there. And he could have stayed there. Again, there was the righteous king at that time there. He could have stayed. But he doesn't. He goes out into the wilderness in that area. Fasting, praying, wondering what's going to happen. Wondering, again, verse 4 tells us, after he dropped him off, he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. Let me die. I've just seen this wickedness. I mean, again, he went from the heights of, of God vindicating him as a prophet and demonstrating his power and destroying the prophets and now he's saying, let me die. God comes, ministers to him, to the angels that bring to him, the angel of the Lord, verse 7 says, he brings to him food, touches him, says, eat of this. And he eats of that food and drinks, and he goes on a journey, and verse 8 tells us, so he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this is significant. Elijah says, all right, I'm going to go find God. I'm going to go to God, I'm going to go into his presence, and I'm going to tell him what's going on here. I'm going to make it known to him, and going to Horeb here is significant, because now he is heading back to Mount Zion. He's heading back to where God met Moses. He's heading back to the, where God saw, uh, met Moses the first time in the burning bush, where God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments. He's going to go back to God's holy mountain. He's going to find a presence with God, and he's going to tell God what's going on. So he flees down. Verse 9 tells us that he came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah gets his presence with God. Gets his hearing. Again, this journey... Is another 200 miles. He is now 300 miles away from Jezebel, or from Jezreel. He is there now, waiting, having fasted 40 days, 40 nights. He comes to have an account with God, and God says to Elijah, Why are you here, Elijah? Notice his response. Verse 10 I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and torn down thine altars and killed thy prophets with the sword. 
and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God, look, I love you. I'm zealous for you. I was used by you. And probably even at that point, he could have said, look, three and a half years I was out there living at the widow's house, waiting for you to come, waiting for all this to work out, living through that drought, living day to day, waiting upon you. And of course, when the when Baal prophets came, I was the one pointing out the, that you were the God of Israel, and I pointed out the folly of falling after the Baals. But none of the people turned. None of the people believed. I am alone and zealous. In fact, they are the ones who have forsaken your covenants, and they are the ones tearing down your altars, and they have killed your prophets by the sword. And I am the only one left. That is his charge. Which then, God demonstrates a series of miraculous demonstrations of his power before Elijah. Has a giant wind come by. And with that wind, he, he tears up rocks. Verse 11 describes this. This wind that's so powerful that comes through is ripping up rocks right before Elijah. And then an earthquake happens right before Elijah. This terrible earthquake performs right before him, shaking the whole ground. And then an intense fire comes up and burns around him. And then lastly, a voice came to him, verse 13, and said, my voice was heard in verse 12, a gentle blowing. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out, and he stood in the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, notice, what are you doing here, Elijah? God's here. God demonstrates his presence. He does it in the wind, he does it in the earthquake, he does it in the, in the fire, and he de- demonstrates the gentle breeze that comes through. Elijah is now aware that he is in the presence of God, the very thing he desired, to find God on this mountain to give his account, and notice the exact same situation as we saw in verses 9 and 10. God asked the question, Elijah, why are you here? And notice in verse 14, Elijah responds and he gives a word-for-word answer for exactly what he said in verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your peoples and the, with the sword, or your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is now a legal charge against Israel. Two accounts, you know, the testimony of Moses and the testimony of one or two witnesses. Two charges, two times the question comes up, two times Elijah says the exact same thing, two times he's making it known emphatically, they have abandoned you, and I'm the zealous one. I'm the one who loves you. I'm all by myself in this. That's why I came to you out here. That's why I went on this 300-mile journey. That's why I've suffered 40 days and 40 nights. That's why I'm here, is to show you my love for you. 
even in the face of their wickedness. This is when Paul says, Elijah pleading with God against Israel, this is it. The moping prophet, distressed by the rebellion of Israel, thinking he's the only one left, thinking that his life is now about to be taken out and there will be nobody left altogether. God, you need to do something about this. You need to deliver me. Of course, from verse 15 to verse 18, God gives Elijah a little perspective. Tells him, yes, I'm going to set up two new kings. You go anoint them, two new kings who will take over, and they'll bring judgment. And I'm also going to set up a new prophet, Elisha. He's going to take over, so your time is going to come to an end. But he also tells him in verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Yes, judgment's going to come. It's going to come on the wicked, but guess what? There are still 7,000 there. I'm preserving, protecting that they're there. Now, that's the background. Let's go back to Romans chapter 11 and see what Paul is drawing out here. Because it's in light of all of that that we see this profound principle that is drawn out in this particular text. You see, again, in the face of wickedness, and the wickedness is not thwarting God's purposes or plans, the wickedness of Israel is not thwarting the plans of God. Well, then what about the righteous servant who's suffering under the wicked and is calling out to God to do something about it? Will that change the plan of God? And Paul's answer is, again, emphatically, no. Why? Because verse 4 I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And the same way then, there, also come, also, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God is still saving. Friends, this sets on us a profound truth. When we're in those moments where we are praying overwhelmed at the burdens of life, overwhelmed at the rise of wickedness, overwhelmed at the hostility of the, of the unrighteous man, even when the unrighteous person has seen the grand demonstration of the power of God in a miraculous way, when God has undoubtedly shown himself, and yet the heart of man stubbornly resisted and opposed, and now is coming to harm the righteous. And it's coming, that wicked heart is coming to destroy those who are upright and God-fearing. And we in our hearts are now casting our anxieties upon the Lord. Deliver us. Rescue us. Take the wicked out of the way. When we are tempted to think in that moment, because we've been so mistreated, so overwhelmed by the unrighteous, the target of their rebellion, that God... You must love us more or love me more and remove this wicked person. What happens or what is he doing when he isn't answering that prayer? Why wouldn't he answer that prayer? And the answer is right here in this text. 
Because what's greater than our personal comfort in the moment, what's greater than our personal pleasure in that moment is God demonstrating the riches of his grace and redeeming those who are in transgressions. So he says in verse 5, In the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God is patient with the wicked so that he can demonstrate the riches of his grace and save them. So when we're distressed and we're calling out for deliverance and we're wanting God to rescue us now and he continues to demonstrate his patience, why is he demonstrating that patience? Because he is demonstrating his gospel of grace upon the wicked. He's patiently saving. Even when we're not seeing it, we know it's happening. Even if we were in Elijah's mindset, I'm the only one left. No, Elijah, I have 7,000 others. You had such a small perspective. Maybe Elijah didn't recognize when he was out and uh, being cared for by the widow and her son that as chapter 18 describes that in 1 Kings that the, the prophets were being pursued and a hundred of them were hidden by Obadiah. Maybe he didn't know of that account. Whatever it was in his particular mind, he thought he was the only one left and God should change everything to protect him. This is our tendency in those moments when we are overwhelming, when, overwhelmed, when we are grumbling about how hard it is. God, you have to change something and everyone else around so that I could be protected. So that I would be okay here. And the answer for why God is not changing your circumstance and delivering you out of it and, and not paving the way for peace for you and not delivering you so that everything feels great for you, the answer is because he is still saving. Because he's still pouring out his grace. Because he's still making it known that he is calling a remnant to himself. So in that moment, I mean, oftentimes we would be something like this today. Jesus, just come. Just set up your kingdom. Let's just end all of this right now. Let's just get to the glories of your kingdom where you reign and all the nations come together and we fellowship with the angels and the righteous and let's just get the wicked out of the way. And yet we keep going. Day after day, week after week. Why would that be? Because God is demonstrating to the wicked they don't deserve to be saved, and yet he pours out his grace and saves. So when we're in those moments praying, one would ask, how should I pray in that moment? Well, certainly you pray uh, like Jesus prayed. Lord, if it be your will, take this cup away. But if not, your will be done. We pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, here are my burdens, I cast them upon you, but I entrust you to work through this. Romans 11, 2 through 6 here, is a divine vantage point that tells us why God might be delaying why he might not be answering that prayer the way you want it to be answered with your own personal comforts and deliverance. He is answering it in this time as to tell us, I'm still saving, so you still need to be patient. 
I'm still rescuing. In this context, he's still saving Israelites. He's still saving a remnant. But the principle also, because we're in the time of the Gentiles, he is still saving those Gentiles who must be saved for him to accomplish his good purposes. Still happening, even if we don't see it. And even if our personal comforts are getting upheaved and overturned, God is still at work. And we need to be comfortable and confident in that work, trusting him. And when we come back next week, we'll see the conclusion of this particular discussion about the remnant from verse 7 through 10, where God and Paul reiterates God is accomplishing his purposes and nothing is going to thwart it as he rescues the redeemed, those whom he has graciously chosen, as verse 5 describes, and then he hardens the rest. And we will talk about that significant theological tension next week.